Hello and welcome to the Tech Disputes Network's Need to Know podcast series. If you haven't been listening so far, Need to Know delivers to your inbox short and accessible podcasts from the experts in the field on the latest developments in technology from the perspective of how they might go wrong. My name is Sam Roberts. I'm a partner at Cook, Young & Keaton and one of the founders of TDN. Today, we are very lucky to have Stephen Hausman QC, part-time judge, full-time silk, and for the next 20 minutes or so, TDN podcast guest. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Sam. Um, very nice to have you. We, uh, I, I hope that our sort of fairly low-grade uh, technical setup over Zoom is, is uh, satisfactory to you. You were regaling me with uh, stories of how, how advanced your IT equipment is uh, and your sort of, uh, sounds almost like you've got a, a, a home studio or something. Well, not quite. I was um, press ganged into hosting a podcast series for or within Chambers. So I was furnished with some quite high tech gear for that. But today's an iPad. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure that I'm sure that we will make do. Um, it's 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 rare that we have uh, such illustrious company on the podcast, so we're very lucky to have you. Um, would you mind um, maybe just sort of starting um, further afield from the uh, the the heady realms of tech tech disputes and sort of tell us a little bit about how you got started um, in your career and um, just give us a sort of canned history of uh, of of it and uh, how you got to where you are. Okay. Depends how far we should go back here. I should say no lawyers in the family, no real role models. I'm a northern comprehensive school lad, uh, lucky enough to go to a very good university and do well there. I then came to the bar, started at Essex Court Chambers in 1997. Um, I had a bit of time off as a senior junior with two babies, came back from the second paternity leave, had about six or seven months off with each one, came back from that, thought, oops, better apply for silks, put that application in. April 2012, got silk following March. And then six years after that, applied for Deputy High Court Judge. And I was appointed that in November 2019. And I'm doing that part time and I'm loving it. Excellent. That's, um, I mean, you basically distilled what must have been quite a lot of work into about 30 seconds. Um, I can't imagine it was uh, quite as straightforward when you were doing it all. Um, but um, very, very exciting all the same. Um, so what's your current focus? We were discussing this previously and you said that you sort of um you had a um a sort of particular niche in something you call corporate misappropriation. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I'll do my best to and it's my label. I mean, I suppose backing up ever so slightly, I have what I would describe as a general commercial practice or a general commercial international practice. So the usual sprinkling of arbitration, mm-hmm. quite a concentration on arbitration related courts application so that interface between arbitration and litigation seems to be an area that i do lots of especially anti-suit injunctions section and then mix- 44 challenges and sorry section 68 challenges yeah the usual array of arbitral challenges yeah. as well yeah. rising out of the arbitrations but lots and lots and lots which i enjoy very much of what you call arbitration related anti-suit work which suits me because i don't like wearing suits boom boom uh, um latterly uh, as in say the last five years or so i've noticed a you are in a T-shirt, by the way, I should just point out. So that's definitely true. That's that's not just a joke. It's also true. I am anti-suiting today in style. This is rather nice. The I've noticed, uh, whether it's a trend or just a bubble of work, and who knows, I may get no more of these after this, but I've noticed a theme in some of the no, more No one's th- career has yet been killed by the <laughs> TDN podcast, so hopefully that, that's not true. That's not quite a disclaimer. It's just a uh, historical <laughs> fact by the sounds of things. It's what I've decided to label 
um, not that it needs a label, corporate misappropriation. These are disputes that don't really fall readily into any known category. They are when but basically two operators, they could be co-shareholders, they could be joint venture partners, they could be collaborators in another way, distribution or whatever. They might be independent entities that courted one another in a merger or acquisition. Anyway, for one reason or another, that relationship, if ever it was one, goes sour. Mm-hmm. distrust lots of distrust creeps in but more specifically allegations of involving economic torts or indeed misappropriation and infringement of the crown jewels so intellectual mm-hmm. property breach of confidence get wrapped up into that i do seem to have done quite a few of those disputes i've got a couple of them on at the moment i was in the chancery division for two days last week seeking recognition and enforcement of a New York Convention arbitral award, which is all mm-hmm. about the breakdown of just such a collaboration with allegations relating to the IP at the heart of the business. So there seems to be those. Like I say, they don't necessarily fall into any particular category. They involve contract, they involve tort, they involve what I'd call soft IP, mm-hmm. co- copyright, maybe trademarks, and breach of confidence, that sort of stuff. It's actually interesting. I hadn't sort of made the connection until until now, but there's a sort of um, w- one of the reasons that we're speaking is obviously um, that you sat as the judge on the Wang and Darby case, um, which is obviously one of the sort of big crypto cases of the year, or I suppose technically last year as well. Um, and the, um, the the connection that uh, uh, has occurred to me um, in uh, as you've been speaking is potentially um, the uh, there's obviously a sort of um, seems to be fairly well established ground about uh, crypto assets being property now. But I suppose the the contrary view, which is sometimes canvassed, is whether or not they are sort of mere information um, and whether or not they could be. Uh, if so, sort of covered by confidentiality protections um, and that sort of thing um, under the common law. Um, interesting. Sorry, I, I'm so, I, I'm sort of spitballing now, but um, it, it it was just in, in the way that you were talking about um, protecting confidential information and sort of remedies for for pursuing that. So maybe we will return to that. Well, actually, one of those so-called corporate misappropriation cases I have on at the moment is a case that's in the Chancery Division called Krypton Digital and Blockchain, which is a failed acquisition, I think it was, business acquisition that that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And the core allegation in that is misappropriation and infringement of of the IP in the Krypton machine, as it were. So that is actually a crypto blockchain dispute that that is also a corporate misappropriation case, or to put it the other way around, it's a case of alleged corporate misappropriation where the assets are crypto related mm. assets so they they do overlap interesting i mean um i don't know about you i i i've seen um quite a lot of uh what i would call sort of second wave crypto litigation recently um uh, it's probably quite a crude uh, analogy because the, the the first wave which i'd sort of considered to be sort of you know stolen crypto assets um theft and fraud and um injunctions and and tracing along the blockchain um as we you know sort of seen quite a lot of that over the past few years now that's definitely ongoing so the first wave is still here but i I, we are certainly seeing more of the sort of crypto disputes as between businesses um and it sounds like you've got um got your hands full with that sort of sort of thing as well yeah you're right and also the claims against the exchanges. I know mm. someone in Chambers, there's a one of the juniors here, Freddie Popperwell. 
Mm-hmm. He's done quite a few crypto-related cases. He's my junior on the one I described, the Krypton digital blockchain case, mm-hmm. where, in fact, the, the opposing counsel is also in chambers as it happens. Mm-hmm. Freddie, Freddie, I know, has done, although it's all anonymized, and I think there's a gagging order, he's, he's been involved recent, very recently in a Bankers Trust Norwich Pharmacal Mm-hmm. application for disclosure against one of the exchanges mm-hmm. and of course many of your listeners will know about is it tulip trading i think the decision yep. from the chancery judge a couple of months ago which is a claim against an exchange so i'm wondering whether that's yeah that's part of the second wave i think the first wave will continue going on i think what what crypto has done is it's created something else to steal and a different <laughs> yeah. way of stealing it yeah can put it like that and when and that d- happens obviously people are unhappy and they go to the courts to see what they can get from the courts but it, and that a totally, obviously... totally novel way of losing your wealth. Yes, in the, in the hope of gaining more, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, or watching the um, watching the graph continue to tank as the uh, as the days go on. Well, right now, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, we haven't had a judge on the podcast before. Um, oh. It's a great honor. Um, so what's the uh, what, what sort of um, what what sort of interested you? Why did you why did you decide to apply to to sit as a judge? That's a good question. Well, I wouldn't describe myself as a judge, so you still haven't got one. Okay. I am I am first and foremost and very much an maybe advocate. next time. Uh, I I applied to be a deputy high court judge because I thought, well, if I got that, that's um it's part of what I would see as an extended mutual courtship or interview process. Obviously, I'm open-minded as to whether to become full-time or whether to go full-time. I've still got some years on my side mm-hmm. uh, and something and some bar earnings yet to generate, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> the and it's 30 days a year in theory i was lucky enough to be given both chancery division where they've given me the business list and qb where they've given me both the circuit commercial court and now the commercial court so i do sit predominantly in commercial cases i have some very very good and much more senior advocates in front of me now on a regular basis i'm trying to help mm. out at the moment with just doing fridays and ad hoc sitting so i'm doing tomorrow for example in the commercial court because as everyone knows a bit rammed at the moment for capacity. Mm. Uh, it's it's hugely enjoyable. It's an incredible learning curve. It stretches you and forces you to grow and forces you to be as, as excellent as you can be. And I really enjoy that side of it as much as anything, the discipline of it. It's, it's pure discipline, having to do the best you can possibly do in every single case and be the fairest. Mm. Have, you, have you noticed from the perspective um, of the bench um, any sort of uh, quirks or irritating habits in in other advocates that you sort of spot in yourself and sort of wish, oh God, I, I should stop doing that? That is a very good question. Um, nothing prepares you for being brought in to the courtroom. So I sit in the Rolls building in mm-hmm. either division. You, you're brought in there, you are so much higher than everyone else leave aside what that symbolizes and the power it's not about that the point is the viewpoint from up there is incredible you see so much Mm. the as for what i've learned i think it's confirmed lots for me i've always been quite cynical about the what i would call the instrumentality of advocacy i'm not convinced advocates make a huge amount of difference and certainly not um, by the time of the oral advocacy Mm -hmm. save in so far as they give things up or they clarify things or they concede things there are obviously hearings where it's a real tug of rope and you're fighting over those few percentage points in the middle and your your advocate Mm. or the relative skills of the advocates can make a difference so but so many commercial cases are resolved 
on analysis. The analysis is often mostly done before you get into the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And the judge is mostly responsive or receptive to that analysis, which he or she sees in writing, first and foremost. That's always been my view or had become my view. And it's pretty much confirmed. I've been mostly impressed by junior advocates and whether that's Mm. an expectation thing that they exceed and then vice versa, whether it's the expectation on silks <laughs> that they don't, I don't know. But I've been on the whole really impressed with the with the crispness and the clarity and structure of junior advocacy. And that warms my heart because I know there are so there are many fewer or much fewer opportunities for for decent day in, day out, week in, week out advocacy at the junior bar. And there are initiatives in place to change that. Um, but very impressive. Mm. The, um, then you see on remote hearings, you see uh, people grimacing. <laughs> we all know grimacing doesn't work. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but, but it might be useful for, for some of your listeners to know if they don't already, that it, not only is it neutral and doesn't work, it can be mm-hmm. a huge offput to watch one council. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a well-paid, responsible council pulling faces in a, either in a remote hearing or indeed in a courtroom or gesturing in a courtroom or body language. It doesn't yeah. work. And not only yeah. does it not work, it's actually quite alienating. So, yeah, yeah. So okay. there. Poker faces only from here on in. And smiling. What's wrong with a girl <laughs> smile? And look at your judge when you're addressing your judge. It's difficult through a screen. I agree with that. But in court, look at your judge and see whether your judge is is listening to you and and responding, I would say. Yeah, interesting. interesting. I mean, I suppose some clients might might not want to uh, think that their advocate is having too good a time uh, on their dime. (laughs) This is true, yes. Interesting. They pay pay lots of money and they expect lots in return, but it isn't always the right things that they they think they've bought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do find the... um, the sort of uh, the tension between the clients sort of wanting to see their um, legal team sort of giving it their all uh, versus the lawyers knowing that uh, maybe not being seen to give it their all um, in order to try and win favor with the judge. Um, it's a sort of really difficult balance to strike and certainly it a, is. a very difficult thing to explain. It is. I think there's a culture change emerging, but as with all these things, it will take a while. That The modern ethos in the commercial court, and it's starting to manifest now in separate costs judgments, Mm. and more and stronger language in the guide when it comes out each time and then through judges giving lectures that there's a modern ethos emerging which with much more emphasis on restraint mm. proportionality especially around citation of authorities i'm mm. not alone in moaning and then in a sense it's not for me to moan because i only sit ad hoc and part-time but it is not abnormal now to sit for a half day hearing and get 30 35 authorities yeah in a bundle it's just become the norm partly that's to do with the proliferation of how we access law mm. online that's changed but there's also a discipline that has to come back in and i think it starts at the bottom end it starts in pupillage mm. and it's going to require i think over time some relatively brutal and embarrassing public costs rulings Mm. That just say when people have even winning parties that they've taken too many bad points, they've cited too many authorities. And of course, that all this emphasis now on getting robust estimates for hearings. If you if you underestimate your hearing to try and shoehorn it into mm. a, list, a sooner listing, a more a more proximate listing than you would otherwise get with a proper estimate, and, it, and you get busted, yep. you're in trouble. I threw a half-day hearing out of the commercial court last Friday afternoon I adjourned it on the Thursday afternoon because it was um, the estimate was woeful and it got thrown right. out and transferred out of the commercial court as it happens 35 authorities cited <laughs> I mean I suppose um then in order to get there um what we need is our advocates to have a sort of 
certain level of confidence to know that they can draw the line um, at, say, whether it's half a dozen authorities or whatever the number is, and know that if the hearing doesn't go their way, they're not going to get asked, why didn't they engage in that race to the bottom, um, uh, you know, grasping at those few few percentage yeah. points. Um, Absolutely. Towards, towards it, it comes back to the fact that client, clients nowadays pay a lot. They've always paid a lot for high quality advocacy, but we all know they now pay an awful lot for mm. high quality advocacy. But it comes down to the client's understanding and in a sense managing their legitimate expectations that what they're not buying is a mouthpiece and what they're not buying is someone who's going to leave no stone unturned. They're mm. buying someone who's going to use judgment and restraint that the judge and the court will respect, not just in terms of brownie points, but the, the court will be more receptive to that person. They will trust mm. that person. Mm. And so much of advocacy comes down to trust, I've always mm. thought. I mean, this is incredibly, incredibly helpful, actually, um, because um, the sort of hearing it from the from the horse's mouth, so to speak, that judges want uh, want less and, and, and that less less really is more when it comes to um, to, to leaving stones unturned. Um, I think that's that's very very useful guidance for the uh, for the profession. I think so, and I'm also I'm not speaking as a full time judge. The full time judges have a very 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 hard and busy job. Mm. I know that there are plus sides to it compared to life at the top end of the bar uh, in certain ways, but it's relentless. Mm. They never get there. It's underfunded. We all know post austerity that the, um, the judiciary is there aren't enough judges. Full stop. Mm -hmm. They aren't. They don't get given enough. Um, they often don't get given enough reading time by the, the people, the litigants, because those litigants are trying to shoehorn, like I say, bigger and more complex matters into smaller listings. They certainly don't get enough time to write judgments. So there's an awful lot of pressure on the judge to process it all on the day and give the ruling and the judgment on the day. They then get criticised and appealed, mm. etc. I think it's a very tough job, and I don't, I don't think personally there's enough appreciation of how tough that job is. Mm. And I think, and an aspect of that is when you get people whose whose predominant advocacy experience is in arbitration. I think sometimes those advocates can struggle to understand who it is that they're trying to persuade when they're in a courtroom. Yeah, because it's a very different. It's a crown servant who's yeah. stretched to bits and overworked. Yeah. It's not an international arbitrator who's flying around the world, notion you're otherwise, yeah. and charging by the hour. It's a very different persuadee. Yeah, as I would call it, and that requires a very different type of persuasion. Yeah, um, that sort of brings me to my final question on the subject, which is: if it is so difficult, why why do people do it? Um, why do you, why do you do it? Out of interest. Well, listen, um, there's a distinction obviously between doing it part time in amongst the bar work and doing it full time. If you ask any or, or a number of full time high court judges, they will say they find it incredibly challenging and stimulating and deeply rewarding work to mm. do to literally do that work. They will, in candid moments, tell you it's tough, because mostly because it's relentless and they could do with some more support. They have mm. got support, they've got some excellent support, but they could always do with more, obviously. And it's what attracts people to do it full-time is that sense of, it's not so much public service, but that's no doubt part of it, but it's an intellectual discipline. Like I say, doing the right thing at the bar, especially at the commercial bar, you aren't always, and you're certainly not being paid to do the right thing. You're being paid to be the most effective, <laughs> the most effective persuader for your client's analysis, you know, if you want to strip it down. And that's a very different intellectual objective and intellectual 
yep. process, quite frankly. So I think there's all sorts that attracts people to it. And if you go early enough, you've got the prospect of becoming, you know, court of appeal and going beyond. That must be quite exciting. Mm. And you see lots as well. On the QB side, you go off and do crime mm. on circuit. Hmm. Great. That was um, a really fascinating insight. Thank you. I mean, so just um, moving on to our to our final topic, um, which is the reason why I, um, as interesting as all of this has been, the, the reason why I <laughs> We haven't talked about crypto, have we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The reason why I initially invited you on the podcast was to talk about crypto. Um, and you obviously jumped out in your um, sitting as the, as the judge in the Wang and Darby case, which I believe was handed down a few months ago well i think it's i think time flies by time I think flies that doesn't was it? november yeah. oh god okay last year feeling then. it was november must be november last year wasn't okay it? well within Beta living one. memory yeah. this this happened within living memory it's relatively fresh people still <laughs> talk about it and in fact very very flatteringly the commercial court this was decided in circuit commercial court before mm-hmm. i was sitting in commercial court and then the commercial court on its website chose to produce a summary and an analysis of it which when when i checked the website i realized they've not done for any other i don't think for any other deputy judgment and not for a judgment from circuit but they might have done it for a judgment from circuit but but either way it's extremely flattering so one of the judicial assistants um, produced a draft of that that's very nice and it's reported and yes it is caused a bit of a stir i mean Mm. if if you really dig into wang and darby you find it's incredibly orthodox reasoning and analysis mm-hmm. it's 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 shaking down a body of material almost entirely comprised in what was 175 pages from memory of telegram transcripts mm. between the two protagonists it's shaking that down to ascertain common intention that's something um litigators and judges have been doing f- well for centuries and certainly for decades it's just so happens that the thing that they were talking about or things yeah were crypto assets but it was yeah. assumed for my purposes it was a reverse summary judgment it was assumed for the purposes at first instance and then it wasn't appeals that crypto assets could be property capable of being impressed with a trust and the only question was did these parties do that yeah and on the on the facts of that case the answer no because what they were doing is they were swapping they were swapping different cryptocurrencies in two separate yeah identical transactions yeah so um a couple of things to unpack there so um one of the um questions i had was and uh, you you sometimes see this certainly in some of the crypto cases i've 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 had where the the crypto is essentially just a macguffin in the story and um, a macguffin is sort of one of my favorite um literary terms i, I roll it out at any a, a, every dinner party i get invited to because um I, I love the concept it's essentially just uh it's it's a sort of literary device where um I mean, you, you probably knew this already but for the benefit of anybody who may not have done um it's essentially a literary device where it just happens to sort of be in the passenger seat for the story and what the actual thing is really doesn't matter um it's just uh it's there to sort of move the story along. So the, the yeah, example, I know what you mean. The, the ring it, in the Lord of the Rings, you know, he could have, Frodo could have thrown a, a, a fridge freezer into Mount Doom and it, it wouldn't have really made any, any got difference. You. It's not quite story. the same thing as wallpaper, is it? It's just, no, it's a, no, it's just, it, it doesn't It's a real anim, animated feature. Or, yeah, yeah. With, of with the no, story, but, but no It's It's there for the ride. Exactly. Yeah. The, the story sort of surrounds it. It, character, it is characterized 
as by the thing, but what the actual thing it does thing is doesn't really make a huge amount of difference. Yeah, I got you. Sorry. So that's a muck, that's a MacGuffin, isn't a it? MacGuffin, yeah. So, MacGuffin. so my question, why well, I assume it's MacGuffin. I don't really, I've never really heard it spoken aloud. <laughs> I've been <laughs> calling it MacGuffin anyway. Um, so my question was, it, it was crypto just the MacGuffin in the story? Could it have been about? Could this case have been about anything? Are we only talking about it because the case? Because um because uh because it, it was crypto in in, uh, in this in this case oh my goodness i'm gonna say yes and no and yes and no but i'm not necessarily <laughs> gonna do two of each it, it is important in the sense that which two individuals would have communicated the way the way those two did sure. through through frenetic overnight almost non-stop highly repetitive and at times downright filthy um <laughs> The communication through telegram other than if it wasn't about crypto because it seems to me that the whole mode of communication and the whole way of communicating within that mode is all so very modern and delocated one one was on the other side they're on different sides of the world from one another so that's a yes no in the sense i suppose what i just said which is if it's presumed to be an asset capable of being held on trust then you jump you jump straight past that point and then you start looking to see whether it was or it wasn't and then i suppose a yes that pulls mm. it back in the other direction as well what was the arrangement because there's different ways there was different ways and with that case which is about tezos there's a swap of tezos and bitcoin so if you kind of forget the bitcoin you just look at the tezos for this mm. the it was all about what was going to be done with them and on what basis so the entire architecture if you want to call it that of these two swap transactions was crypto infused in the sense that the whole purpose of them revolved around it wasn't mining it was beaking mm. i think in the case of tezos and there was always the possibility but it didn't arise on these facts that one party can send their tezos or send their crypto to someone else who they trust because this all comes down to trust with a view to that the recipient holding them for certain purposes but with nothing coming back the other way other than at the end of a certain period or in the form of profits or commission or something like that on the, on the tokens that they've made in which case you could well imagine a, um, the possibility of a trust arising at that point because the mm. person person A isn't parting forever with their crypto assets and person B isn't receiving them to do what they want with them. They're, they're receiving them for certain purposes. So with sufficient intent and sufficient structure imposed, you could see a trust coming over that. And, and the, the arrangement not be not being contingent on um yeah on the other person that's what killed back. it i mean you can mm. I mean, i'm not saying anything that you can't see from the face mm. of the mm. judgment obviously and it's reported but it's it was what i described as the essential yeah. economic reciprocity because it was a swap basically yeah swap, swap with a small s yeah yeah um so going back to the crypto as property point um and something i sort of flagged quite early on um so i was at a um a a CFAR um, event, which is the, the the crypto fraud and asset recovery. Um, it is Essex uh, Court Chambers being a co-founder of it. Indeed, indeed. I thought yes. I'd give you some airtime. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so I was at an event um, a couple of months ago, and one of your fellow members of Chambers. And I, I don't believe anyone said that Chatham House rules applied. So um, I'm going going right okay. in here. Shoot. I believe the the term he used was that anyone with half a brain cell can see that crypto is property. Um, is that a view you subscribe to, or is is there still some argument over it? I mean, I know it didn't really. It was it, 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 both sides seem to go into that case with that already being assumed. Well, I'm just at the moment trying to figure out from that phraseology who it was who just said that, and I've got I've got a short list in my head, but I'm not going to share it. The uh, it I I would definitely be. I mean, I didn't have to look at this in Wang. 
there was a yep. there was a detailed judgment of Mr. Justice Bryan in one of the what is now a whole series of against persons unknown proprietary injunctions at the time. I think there were two or maybe three. And Mr. Mm-hmm. Justice Butcher had found the same way, but it's the judgment of Mr. Justice Bryan that had done the intellectual legwork, and indeed mm. um, that had been done in large part by the report, the governmental report that looked into this from some years before that. So, and that there are enough there are enough indications of it being property to outweigh the contraindications mm-hmm. of it being property, I think is probably the best way to describe it. Yep. So if it's a football result, it's, it's you know, 9-4 or 9-3, and that's enough yep. to make it a win. And, then, yep. and now whether that's settled for all time in English law, we don't yet know because it hasn't gone above first instance and it hasn't been decided on a contested basis, I don't think, at first instance. Well, I mean, that, that was the point. I mean, it's sort of quite interesting to me is that a lot of this stuff has only come up in the context of a, an undefended... Um, interim application for yeah. freezing order where you're 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 um establishing it on the on the basis of good arguable case um if this were to go to i mean you could sort of see this 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 issue going to trial in say a sort of probate or an insolvency context where yeah, there could. are vested interests on either side of the fence yeah well i my first commercial court trial which i heard it was a part eight claim i heard it about three or four weeks ago the judgment is now out was all and I'll make this relevant in a moment. It was all about the time bar rules under the financial ombudsman scheme <laughs> uh, in circumstances where the relevant consumer who had been missold PPI had become bankrupt and their estate invested in the official receiver. Mm-hmm. And the question was then, well, whose knowledge matters for the, th- the three-year time bar that right. resembled Section 14A? Was it the official receiver who now had the claim vested in them or was it the original and now bankrupt or, or perhaps since unbankrupt, who knows, consumer. And But part of that analysis then involved getting into the, rolling the sleeves up and getting into the nitty gritty of what the property was uh, for the purposes of the Insolvency Act. So what did vest in the trustee in bankruptcy upon their appointment? And I concluded that a statutory right to seek redress through an ombudsman scheme is property as so widely defined in Section 436 of the Insolvency Act. Now, this point may well come up in that context. Someone may go bankrupt. The question is, uh, does do their crypto holdings or their crypto wallets vest in their, in their trustee in bankruptcy? Or like you say, it could come up in divorce proceedings. It's going to come up at some point on a contested basis. I think mm. that has to happen because it's, mm. just a question of, it's just a question of when. Yeah, And then it's a question of whether there's a different intellectual analysis that somehow displaces what Mr. Justice Bryan found on a, on a fully reasoned, albeit uncontested basis in one of those persons unknown cases. If I was a betting man and I don't, I don't dabble in crypto or gamble uh, very much, I would say uh, it's going to come down on the line that it is property. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Nine, nine, three, like you say. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, interesting. So was this your first foray into the into the world of crypto? <laughs> it was for my sins, yes. <laughs> I had quite a bit of learning to do. I'm fine on the test for reverse summary judgment, and I'm fine on the test for whether or not a trust arises in a commercial context, but, but I wasn't quite so familiar with the, the world of crypto. I just basically blocked it out somehow. <laughs> which sounds quite awful <laughs> it was for other people <laughs> and, and that remains so in my personal capacity i've got no interest in it really but the uh, <laughs> but it's fascinating it's, it's a tribute to human ingenuity mm. but only in the same way i suppose you might say that investment banking is because because they the investment bankers over the course of decades have found 
the more and more elaborate and exotic ways to bet upon bets upon bets upon bets. And, yeah. and this isn't quite that in the speculation sense or compounding speculation, but it's, it's ingenuity to create yeah. something from nothing that then, yeah. that then create, that has its own impetus and its own momentum and its own belief system and its own set of rules is, is miraculous. Some people will see it as religion probably. Yeah, well, and it's a sort of interesting comparison with with investment bankers because investment bankers, I mean, I find tend to have to go through university and then spend um, you know tedious years of their lives sort of doing analysis and, until they're sort of in a, in any position to sort of you know gamble any serious money. I mean, they might they might be in their mid twenties, but at least they're in their mid twenties. Um, whereas you know some of the people with their sleeves rolled up deep into crypto are you know barely even into adulthood um sitting at a, a computer in their sort of parents loft or something uh, toying with vast sums of money yeah you're right and also i mean who's forgotten michael owen's goal against argentina in the world cup in 98 <laughs> a goal that could be only scored by an 18 stroke 19 year old not someone in their mid or late 20s with all the fear and all the risk uh, that, that gathers as one gets older and so you're right that there is some of that there's that fearlessness of yeah youth, that, that risk appetite is completely different you see it on the roads the way people yeah. drive when they're younger but the um and that may be part of the dynamic i don't know it might have been part of the dynamic in wang and derby i don't know what, i can't remember what the age was now but mr wang but you, i guess you see that and they're going to make more bold mm. much more bold decisions Mm, mm, yeah, interesting. Um, and is is the um was your sort of experience of getting to grips with the world of crypto, uh, to you know, to the best of your knowledge, was that sort of fairly standard um among the the, the sitting bench, or you know, do you find that the that the judiciary are generally pretty well versed on these subjects? I've, I'm only ever amazed by how ready the um the sitting judiciary are by and by which in terms of the gene pool i'm looking at it's the occupants of the roles building obviously mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how incredibly um adaptive they are to technology and we all saw that during the pandemic there are mm -hmm. now um many judges now who are entirely paperless and they just retrain they've retrained their brains effectively not to need that paper comfort mm -hmm. that visual that visual aid or support of seeing the thing on paper with the highlighter on it i can't i confess i'm not there yet and, and, and i i sense although i don't know specifically from talking to anyone that hand in hand with that it's a general embracing of yeah. technology across the board which would include this i mean it is incredible how when you come before commercial court judge how little you have to explain about the actual sort of technical details of what's going on Frequently. Yeah, well, I was lucky in Wang and Derby because there was there were expert reports yeah. from from Mr. Wang because because obviously it was a freezing order case. And yeah, it had the proprietary yeah. injunction. That's the one I set aside because I said there was no proprietary claim because there's no trust, so there was no proprietary claim to support that that type of injunction. Mm -hmm. The freezing order was continued, and then I think continued without the exceptions later on by His Honour Judge Pelling, from what I saw. But um, there were two, possibly three, for basically forensic, I don't know how you describe these people, forensic technical reports of people who trace through the wallet system mm -hmm. um, to show it as part of risk, the risk of dissipation analysis. So mm -hmm. to go back earlier to the MacGuffin 
your MacGuffin points, however we're pronouncing it, in the freezing order cases and the proprietary injunction cases, of which they're going to be loads because there's going to be so many thefts. Yeah. It's just that people aren't necessarily going to know who or where it's gone. Yeah. The the tracing exercise, and I say tracing with a small T, you know, as in the proving where it's gone exercise, yep. is just is now going to fall in the hat to people of a certain very specific discipline. Yeah. Which which isn't necessarily the case with money trace, you know, yeah. money tracing and through assets. So that's that's just a whole new world. Yeah. And a whole um, new set of expertise. And that's that's one of the ironies of this technology is that you you can see immediately without having to go and do a Norwich Pharmacal where, where it's it, gone. Where it's gone. Um, yeah, it's just you. You don't know to whom it has gone. Um, yeah, hence the importance of the uh, and one of the, one of the things that application. was such an eye opener for me, and it just reminded me of tomb raiding. Was there? There was a suggestion, or at least it was something I read something in the evidence about basically hackers for hire. I mean, this probably doesn't surprise you because it's probably a, a well-known phenomenon, but I wasn't aware of it. So people who offer their hacking services. Mm. In return for a percentage of what they find, you know, once they break into the tombs, it were. Yeah. Again, all done on a trust basis. Because can yeah. you trust your hacker? Are hackers the kind of people you should be trusting? Yeah. This I, is the philosophical question. The that sort of leads on to an interesting discussion we had on a TDN webinar a few months ago about ethical hacking and whether hacking can, in in light of I think it's Section One of the Computer Misuse Act, which is an incredibly broadly drafted piece of legislation which can put you in prison for so much as looking at a computer the wrong way um you know can can a can a hacker sort of trust that the job that they've been put up to is is you know um sorry an ethical hacker can they trust that the job that they have been put up to oh, is, is not one that's in in furtherance of a criminal offense yeah so that's the other way around that's the, yeah. that's the ethical dilemma the other way around can you yeah. can the hacker trust their client i don't yeah. come at it from the point of view is can the client trust the hacker but yeah there you go. I think trust is a huge part of this. I mean, when they did the exchange, the simultaneous exchange of wallets or wallet keys in Wang and Derby, that was an act of faith. So, mm. and, and and just to go back slightly on that, what you may find, therefore, in these cases, is that there the chat, the chat that's electronic chat, is all about building that trust. Now, someone could be just getting scammed mm. by, by a very a very clever groomer, for you know, an economic groomer. Who knows? But the chat, I suspect, is a, is an integral part. Of these two strangers on different sides of the world not really knowing well not knowing who the other one is or knowing whether they have anything to offer basically sounding each other out with a view to pressing at some point pressing send like a hostage swap mm -hmm. and allowing access to their crypto assets it is it is ironic isn't it though i mean given that the whole purpose of crypto originally was to remove trust as a necessary ingredient for a transaction that you know because i've heard this from clients before you know oh, it's just a world where you have to trust people well why is it a world you have to trust people it's it seems that the whole thing was set up so that you didn't have to trust um you know intermediaries or, or your or your opponent or, or not opponent but sort of um counterparties sorry looking at things like a litigator yeah not everyone's in dispute um counterparty is the right word um but yeah. there definitely does seem to be this sort of assumed role of trust when you are up to your ears in this world yeah well it's that there is that moment where there is an instantaneous irreversible and delocated transfer of economic value when mm. you press when you press the button mm. and you're doing that in favor or to a place that's been nominated by someone you you've never met and at a time whether measured in seconds nanoseconds minutes or whatever where you haven't got your reciprocal value back yeah 
And, and I mean, it, I suppose the only thing you have to associate that person person with is a Telegram handle. Yeah. Well, that might not be much use at the end of the day. <laughs> no, really not. <laughs> then you'd be wishing you'd have it in cash under the mattress. Really. <laughs> exactly. right, that's, my, that's my investment policy. <laughs> exactly. Well, right now, that in, uh, cash under the mattress would seem like a uh, safer bet than uh, than being involved, invested in crypto, for sure. <laughs> right. Um, thank you very much, Stephen. Um, that has been really, really interesting. I don't want to keep you any longer than necessary. Um, so unless you have anything you want to add? Um, no, I- only to thank you. I've had a lot of fun and it's been, it's been enjoyable explaining all that. Great. Well, really nice to chat and um, we will hopefully see you at the next um, TDN event if if that wouldn't uh, be considered cheating on CFAR as a member of Essex Court Chamber. It would be an honour. Excellent. We'll look we will forward see to you seeing there. you there. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. A huge thanks to Stephen for taking part in TDN's Need to Know podcast series. If you've made it this far and are still listening, a big thanks to you as well. And if you have something interesting to say about technology and how it might go wrong, get in touch at inquiry at disputes.tech or drop me a line directly to sam.roberts at cyklaw.com. We'd love to have you on the series. See you next time.